This past week, uh, some guy got really upset. We, we did a, the newspaper did a really nice article uh, on our church last week, a couple of them, and this guy got mad this week, and he wrote in, and it was like on Thanksgiving Day, and he called me Reverend Skinny Jeans. And I was really offended because I do not like to be called Reverend. And, and, <laughs> but I was like, praise God, if you think I can wear skinny jeans, more power to you, pal. I, I'm very grateful for that, you know? What was that about? I want to welcome those of you who are uh, listening remotely to our podcast uh, this morning. As some of you might know, today marks the beginning of a season that throughout church history, traditionally has been known as Advent, and Advent runs through uh, Christmas Eve. Today's really the first day of Advent, and it runs through Christmas Eve. And it's kind of a, you know, I think uh, Advent historically has been kind of a spiritual rehearsal in your own life of the anticipation that the Jews felt as they waited for a, a Messiah. The word Advent refers to Jesus coming to earth. His first Advent occurred in a village uh, called Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. His the Bible promises that there will be another advent in the future at a date that no one knows. Now, I, just by way of full disclosure here, I just want you to know that I have, I've never been uh, personally very big about the celebration of Advent. I, you know, I, Christmas has always been, I, I, don't, I don't dig Christmas that much. Hist- traditionally, historically, I just haven't dug it that much. I, I, no big reason other than I think that I hate to shop, and I think I just resent the fact that I'm forced to shop at Christmas time. And so I just don't, I've just never really enjoyed it because I know that that day of shopping is coming and that I have to do it. I have to go out and shop. And so I've never been big about it. But this year, I thought that I was going to, I decided I'm going to emotionally engage with Christmas, and I want to try to integrate a little of Advent into my own life. And I decided that I was going to do that by, by reading and meditating on what is the most exalted description of Jesus Christ in all of the Bible. And guess what? You get to come with me on this journey. Do you know why? Because I'm the pastor, and, it's, and, and I'm the pastor of this church. And if you want to take people on a journey for your Christmas, you go start your own church. How about that? <laughs> if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, in the New Testament. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. And I would just suggest that in your own life, I, I really do think that if between now and Christmas Eve, I think Colossians 1 would be a fantastic passage for you to read and maybe even read with your family and meditate on throughout the Advent season. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, this one chapter for the weeks that are leading up to Christmas. Now, as you approach this letter, well, in fact, before we do that, I want, I want to just say a word of prayer. Let's, let's just take a moment and say a word of prayer before we interact with the Scriptures. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come and to in, interact with a passage like Colossians 1. And it is way beyond us. It is so beyond us. We come here today, every one of us, with so many attachments to things and to other people and um, that, that, that they sort of rob us of experiencing our great desire for you. Lord, would you free us from those attachments? And maybe today would be a day that you would free us from some of those attachments or at least begin the process of that. Lord, we pray for the other churches in the area. Even, even the, the church of the guy that was, so, <laughs> that was so angry this past week. I pray for him and I pray for his church and I pray that the gospel would go forward there and throughout this city. We pray that you would use the gospel to bring revival to the city of Evansville and beyond. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So what I was going to say is as you approach the book of Colossians, you have to understand that throughout history, 
humanity has consistently tried in every way imaginable to diminish the person and the significance of Christ. And there are two motivations behind this. One is demonic. Uh, We forget this because we live in a very materialistic culture. And by materialistic, I mean that we focus on things that we can see, things that are material. We forget that there is very real spiritual warfare happening all around us. And one of the motivations for this uh, diminishing of the significance in the person of Christ is very demonic. Satan understands, perhaps better than any of us even, the central significance of Jesus Christ in human history. And so he encourages any and all attempts to undermine Jesus. Now, the other motivation for it is humanistic. Jesus is an offense to human pride. We've talked about this in previous weeks. Jesus' death on the cross reminds all of us. It reminds us of our brokenness. It reminds us of our neediness. It reminds us of our dependence. And it demands our submission to his lordship of the universe and his lordship over our lives. But see, humanity doesn't want to submit to anyone else's lordship. What we want is to be autonomous beings. That's what we long for. And so rather than submitting to Christ, we attempt to diminish his importance. And we try this in any number of ways. Some do it. Some try to diminish Christ's significance uh, by refusing to acknowledge his existence at all. Some people like, uh, you guys remember the book that Dan Brown wrote a few years ago. It was called uh, The Da Vinci Code. And in that book, uh, what Dan Brown was trying to accomplish, he was trying to diminish Jesus by attacking Jesus' deity. There's a current book uh, on, the, on the New York Times bestseller list. It's called Zealot. And in that book, uh, Zealot, the author attempts to say that history has so obscured Jesus' real identity that we can't possibly know who Jesus is. Um, Muslims uh, diminish Jesus by ascribing to him uh, only the role of a prophet. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses deny Jesus' deity. Uh, uh, Gnosticism has denied his humanity historically. Uh, some people deny Jesus' uh, resurrection. Uh, some people even deny his death. And so there are all these ways that we try to do this. Colossians was written, the book of Colossians was written because by AD 60, by, by, by the year AD 60, okay, already less than 30 years after Jesus' death, there were people already in and around the church in Colossae who were attempting to diminish or reduce the importance of Jesus. Now, because it was so soon after Jesus' death, they couldn't really deny his existence because there would still have been people alive who had seen and known Jesus personally. So what these false teachers in uh, Colossae are doing is they're trying to say that Jesus... They're trying to say that Jesus, well, yes, he's important to spirituality, but only in an elementary or introductory way. Like, if you're really serious about spirituality, what they were saying is you you need to advance past Jesus. There are certain rules that you need to follow, and there are certain religious festivals that you need to observe that go beyond Jesus if you really want to grow into spiritual fullness. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter because he wants to correct this error, and he lays out in this letter the cosmic significance of Jesus as Lord of the universe. Now just stop for a moment and let that idea just sink into your brain for a moment. The cosmic significance of Jesus as Lord of the universe. I've titled this series Incomparable because Paul leaves us with 
absolutely no intellectual or philosophical excuse for not worshiping Jesus as the incomparable, matchless, peerless, unrivaled, unequaled, one and only Savior of the world and Lord of the universe. He just leaves you with no excuse. And what I want to do is I want to start this week uh, by reading, we'll, we'll start with just the first eight verses and we'll kind of read all those verses together and then we'll make a few observations uh, on those verses. But I'm going to tell you, like this week is just the beginning. It gets, this passage gets better and better and better and better and more and more and more exalted as you go. We'll just start this week, verses one through eight, because I don't think that your hearts could handle the whole thing this week. So we're just going to start with verses one through eight. Here we go. This is like an appetizer, okay? Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring. Notice the order there, the faith and love. Faith comes first and love. Love comes after faith. Do you know why Miley Cyrus uh, sings about the wrecking ball thing and about how her boyfriend, uh, his love uh, just bre- aches her? You know how she does Okay, the reason is because she's not, she's not loving him and he's not loving her with a, f- with a love that comes from faith in Jesus Christ. These are two selfish people, boom, coming together and clashing like a wrecking ball. There's the theology of Miley Cyrus' newest song. They just clash with their selfishness. They're not loving each other with a, with a love that comes from faith in Jesus Christ first. Okay, let's move on. Okay, the love that they, they spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. And that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us, of your love in the Spirit. And if you would, just I'd like to get you to skip down to verse 28. We'll come back to the intervening verses in the weeks ahead, but uh, it's very important that you see this. He says, We proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all His energy, which so powerfully works in me. Tell you, one of the things that makes this letter so remarkable, remarkable to me is that Paul writes it from prison. And we know this uh, from the record of the book of Acts. And yet, even though he's in prison, persecuted for his own faith in Christ, he, he, he begins this letter by telling these Colossians how thankful he is for their faith in Christ. And from this prison, he so unselfishly writes this, and, and he crafts what many people believe is the greatest of all of Paul's letters. Now, there's a, there's a lot that we could focus on in these verses, but what I really want to zero in on this morning is what I think is the real emphasis uh, here in these verses. Paul is concerned that these people, um, he wants to make sure that these people not allow the gospel that they learned from the man who planted this church in Colossae. His name is Epaphras. We know that from these verses. He's concerned that they not allow the gospel to be diluted by false teaching. And so he emphasizes five characteristics of the gospel that I think, are, I think are critically important for us to see this morning so that we don't allow 
the gospel to be diluted either. It, but, but before we do that, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to, I want you to uh, open up the program that you were given this morning when you came in. Would you just open that up? And if you go down there, if you go uh, like on the middle page of the program, you see it, it, it says our vision and values. And so we describe our vision statement, and then it's got our values. And these are the things, these values are the things that sort of, they, they define the ethos, the personality uh, of our church. And if you'll notice, the very first value that we list is what? What's the very first value that we list? The gospel, right. The most important thing that defines us as a church is the gospel. We have to get the gospel right. If our church lasts for 100 years and grows to 10,000 people and has the nicest facilities in town and the best programs in the tri-state region, if we have all of that but we don't get the gospel right, we will have completely failed at what we've been called to do. And you say, well, how hard can that be uh, to get the gospel right? It's pretty simple, isn't it? Well, I would tell you that it is way more difficult than you think because the gospel is counterintuitive. In fact, I will, I will tell you that in my own mind, I, I routinely have to intentionally remind myself about what the gospel is and isn't because it's so counterintuitive. And it's why Paul gives us this, because it's, it's why Paul writes about this in Colossians 1, because it is so counterintuitive that we tend to get the gospel wrong. And so he gives us five tests in these verses to see if you really understand the gospel or if you have been affected by some distortion of the gospel that has rendered the gospel ineffective, uh, at least on a practical basis, in your life. And you will see that all of these culminate in Jesus himself. In fact, let me just go ahead and give you the first one. The first one is this, that the gospel is truth. The gospel is truth. Paul refers to this in the middle of verse 5. He says, you have already heard about uh, in the word of truth. The gospel that has come to you. Uh, the gospel is truth. I, I'm going to tell you, if you were to walk onto the campus of any university in America, including USI or uh, U of E, and if you would say uh, there on the campus that you believe the gospel is the truth, uh, you would immediately be considered unenlightened and outrageous to make such an exclusive claim. Because anyone with any enlightenment knows that there is no one truth out there for everyone. Truth is relative to individual people and, and individual cultures, if truth even exists at all. Okay? In fact, I would tell you, I watched a, somebody uh, in the church uh, forwarded me a link to a, a debate uh, that I watched a couple of days ago between uh, a Harvard University humanist uh, chaplain whose name is Greg Epstein. And uh, the debate was between him and Tim Keller, a very well-known pastor in New York City. And Epstein uh, actually made this point. He, he said that when a group believes that they, that they have the truth, uh, the truth for everybody, he said they actually become dangerous and oppressive to the rest of society. So not just unenlightened or intolerant, but dangerous. He said. And yet, Paul has the audacity here to claim that the gospel is noticed. He, he doesn't say it's a truth, he says it is the word of truth. And it's that exclusivity that angers people so much about Christianity. Now, I don't have time for a lesson in Christian, apolo in, in Christian apologetics today, but if you don't understand 
that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the truth for all people in all places in all time, then you really don't understand the gospel. Jesus described himself in this way. He said, I am, listen to this, John 14, 6. Now, you got to deal with this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man shall pass to the Father but through me. Now, that makes Jesus, and this is not original me. You've heard this before, some of you. That makes Jesus either a lunatic on the level of a poached egg, a self-deceived liar, or it makes him the Lord of the universe. And what I want you to see, what you're going to see in these verses, if you'll meditate on these throughout the holiday season, I mean, it'll be fantastic for you through the Advent season. It'll be fantastic. Paul is going to say that Jesus is Lord of the universe. That's what he's going to say. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not, is not a truth for, for Christians. He is the truth for all people in all places and in all times. The gospel is the truth. And if you don't get that, you don't, you don't understand the gospel. Second thing, I want to move on to the second test. Okay, here's the second test. See if you understand the gospel or if it's been diluted in your own mind. Here it is. The gospel is joy. The gospel is joy. Now, where does it say that? Well, the very word gospel that Paul uses twice in this passage, he uses it uh, once in verse 5, he uses it once in verse 6, and then he refers to it um, sort of in the third person a number of places in this passage, but he uses the word specifically twice in this passage. Uh, the word gospel is a Greek compound word that means a joyous proclamation, a proclamation of joy, you know? And again, this is something that a lot of people and a lot of churches get wrong. How many of you, uh, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have walked into a church service in which you felt like you must have unknowingly walked into a funeral? Anybody walk into a service like that? Yeah, I have. And you're like, what's going on? Uh, one of my favorite authors, the late Dallas Willard, he, he wrote this, and you may have heard me quote this before because it's a great, I just, I love Dallas Willard and I love this quote. He says, how many people are radically and permanently repelled from the way? By that he means the gospel. Uh, how many people are radically and permanently repelled from the way by Christians who are unfeeling, stiff, unapproachable, boringly lifeless, obsessive, obsessive, and dissatisfied? Yet such Christians are everywhere, and what they're missing is the wholesome liveliness springing from a balanced vitality with the freedom of God's loving rule. Spirituality wrongly understood or pursued is a major source of human misery and rebellion against God. Isn't that true? Now, I'm not, again, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of you understand Christianity? I wonder if you, how many of you think of Christianity really as a hard grind? I wonder how many of you think of Christianity that when you think of it, you think that it's all about self-denial and discipline and it's a duty and it's a guilt and maybe you even think that Christianity, a little Christianity is good for everybody because what Christianity does is it reigns in your passions. And I wonder if that's how you think of Christianity. And I wonder if you think that if you could just get out from underneath Christianity, you could really enjoy life. If that's what you think when you think of the gospel, then you really don't understand the gospel. You are wrong about the very essence and the core of Christianity. 
Anybody who, is really understand, who really understands the gospel, who has really understood it, their immediate response is joy because they finally found who and, and what their heart has always longed for. And I'm going to tell you the truth. It's usually only after they've gone to a church for a while that doesn't really understand the gospel that they lose their joy. I mean, most people start off very joyful, and then they go to some church that doesn't get the gospel, and then they kind of lose their joy. And I'm going to tell you, if you don't understand that the gospel is joy, then you don't get the gospel. It's one of the tests, Paul says, whether you understand the gospel or whether it's been diluted in some way, shape, or form for you and rendered ineffective. Here's a third test. Paul says that the gospel is power. It's power. Uh, Paul says in verse 6, he said, All over the world this gospel is bearing fruit, and it's growing, just as, as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it. Uh, this means that there's, a, that there's a power to the gospel. It means it's coming into people's lives, and it's making radical changes internally to people. When Paul uses the word fruit, when he says that it's bearing fruit, we know what he means. Uh, he's talking about internal uh, character revolution. For example, in Galatians 5, he says that the fruit, uses the same word, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are internal character changes. Uh, These aren't um, external compliance to some code of conduct. These are changes that are happening inside a person. Now, ultimately, they will manifest themselves on the outside, but Paul says the gospel is not first com- con- concerned about the outside. It's concerned first about your insides. It comes in, and it does something that no self-help program and no other world religion can do. It changes you internally, you see. And, I, and the, here's where I want to make a point that I think many of us miss. I want you to notice that Paul is saying that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. He says the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. There are a lot of you that think that the gospel is much like the teachers in uh, Colossae. You think that the gospel is elementary. In other words, uh, you think of the gospel that like it's what got you into the kingdom but that the way you grow spiritually is obedience to the principles of the Bible. In other words, the gospel saves you, but hard work and a kind of grim obedience advances you spiritually. And as I said, that's not all that different from what the false teachers in Colossae were saying. Now, if that's what you think, you don't understand the gospel. Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit comes from the gospel. In other words, the gospel is both both what saves you and the gospel is what advances you. It's all about the gospel, right? It it not only has the power to save you, but it also has the power to advance you spiritually. Are you anxious today about something? If so, that's a lack of peace. If you're anxious, it's because you're not believing and applying and using and rehearsing in your own mind the gospel. Because once you have the gospel, you've got everything, okay? Are you angry? Well, that's a lack of love. And somehow you're not applying the gospel, the power of the gospel, to your life. If you really understand the gospel, you realize that all the problems in your life are remedied by the gospel. 
You don't just say, well, okay, I, I, okay, I understand the gospel. I got the gospel. Yeah, I, I, I got the gospel years ago, but I can't figure out what to do next in my life. No, you go back and you look at the door you entered Christianity through, and the same power that brought you through the door is the very door that will help you through whatever situation that you're facing right now in your life. The gospel. It's power. The gospel is power. The power is not in you. Uh, The power is not in your obedience. The power is the gospel. The gospel enables you to obey. But the power is the gospel. Okay? Here's a fourth test to see if you understand the gospel. Paul says that the gospel is grace. The gospel is grace. If you look carefully... The synonym for the gospel in verse 6 is God's grace. Watch this. He says, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it, there's another reference to the gospel, he's referring to the gospel there, just as the gospel has been doing among you since the day you heard it, the gospel, and understood, here's the synonym for the gospel, God's grace. It's a synonym for the gospel, the God's grace in all its truth. Okay. The reason... Understand this. The gospel's grace. The reason that the gospel is such an offense to humanity is it says that there is nothing that we can do to earn approval before God. The gospel is God's work on our behalf, not our work on his behalf. And yet many churches lose sight of this over time. I was thinking about this um, this past week, and I was just trying to think about... I made a partial list of things. And just a partial list... But I made a partial list of things that uh, churches often teach, either directly or indirectly through the church's culture, perhaps, but that they often teach and sort of mistakenly include as part of the gospel. And what I want you to notice is that the distinguishing trait in each of these is human effort. Okay, so we'll put them up here on the screen. Maybe you've heard of some of these. Maybe you've even said some of these things. Like one is you must be baptized to be saved. Here's another one. You can't go to movies. Uh, No skirts above your knees. You cannot have your children in public schools. You must be a Republican. You must read the Bible and pray daily. Your church must not use musical instruments. Your church must sing hymns only. No alcohol, no dancing, no makeup. Don't dress fashionably. Don't drive new cars. Don't drive expensive cars. The sad thing is, this is just, this is just a part. I've only scratched the surface. We could go on like this for hours, listing things that churches have said. This is part of the gospel. And look, none of that stuff has anything to do with the gospel. The problem with all of that stuff that I just listed there, the problem with all of us, all of it, is that it confuses human morality for the supernatural work of God. I might be able to get you through peer pressure to keep uh, to, to not listen to music that offends me in some way. I might be able to do that. I might be able to give you enough of a hairy eyeball if you mention a song that I don't like. I might be able to do, I might be able to keep you from ever listening to that song again. But what I can't do is create in you a love for people that is so immense that like you would just never listen to a song, you just wouldn't want to listen to a song that degrades other people. You see the difference? The hairy eyeball effect is external, it's peer pressure, it's guilt, it's you, try, it's you obeying just because I gave you the hairy eyeball. 
but a love inside that says, I would never, I just really wouldn't want to listen to something that degrades other people. That is something that only the gospel can create. I might be able to keep you from buying a car that some people think is too extravagant by, by applying some kind of peer pressure to you. I might be able to say, you know, I might say in some service that anybody who drives such and such cars, uh, Kias, no, I'm just kidding you, whatever, such and such car, whatever it is, I, I might be able to keep you from, from buying that car and driving that car, but I could never create in you a generous spirit. Like I, could, I, could make, I, I, think I, could, I think enough work, you could, you could make a group of people very miserly. But you can't create generosity. Only the Spirit of God can do it. Only the gospel can do that, you see. Like I might be able to get you to read the Bible and pray daily because you're afraid not to. Like I might come up to you and ask you, how are your quiet times on Tuesday this week? And you say, well, I didn't have one. You didn't have one? <laughs> because I spent an hour in mine, and tomorrow I'll spend an hour praying for you because you didn't have your quiet I might be able to guilt you into doing that, make you afraid not to have one, but I could never get you to do it because you just love God and you're so fascinated by him that you want more. See, I could never do it. Only the gospel can do that. That's why the gospel is, is about grace. It's not about external code of conduct that I set or we set. It's about grace. And it makes internal changes in people's lives. If any of those things that I just put on that list or on your list or anything else, if, if anything but God's grace is in your understanding of the gospel, you don't really understand the gospel. And it will be rendered ineffective in your life. And you think to yourself, well, gosh, why are we covering this? This is so basic. I'm going to tell you something. It is not basic. It is not elementary. It is, it is fundamental to Christianity, the gospel. And if you don't just keep reminding yourself of it all the time, over and over and over and over, and over again, you will find yourself, I find it in my life, you will find yourself including all of these other things in the gospel that aren't part of the gospel. Okay, lastly, and, and this is where it all culminates, and this is, this is why we're doing this during the Advent season. Finally, this is, maybe this is the most important of all of them. The gospel is Christ himself. The gospel is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is our gospel. The long-awaited Messiah of Israel is the gospel. He's not part of the gospel. He is the gospel. The birth of the baby in the manger was the birth of the gospel, the hope of the world. You notice what it tells us here in the end of this passage. All through uh, the whole chapter of uh, first chapter of Colossians, you see Paul saying, I proclaim the gospel. I bring you the gospel. In verse 23, he says, I proclaim the gospel. But then when he gets to the end, what does he say? He says, you'll see it in the passage. He says, I proclaim him. What does that mean? Well, here's the reason the gospel is truth and joy and power and grace. Because Jesus Christ is 
Christianity. Jesus Christ is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus. It's not about Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. Other religions uh, say, here's the way. Jesus says, no, I'm the way. Other religions say, here's the truth, follow it. Jesus says, no, I'm the truth. Other religions say, uh, here's how to be a righteous person. Go be a righteous person. And Jesus says, no, I am your righteousness. See, if you want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand like the book of Colossians or the book of Galatians or Corinthians, for example, this is the way it always works out. Paul talks to somebody who says, I have Jesus, but I also need circumcision. Uh, I have Jesus, but I also need righteousness. I have Jesus, but I also need this or that. Paul always comes back and he says, all of your problems come because of the but also's in your life. Get rid of the but also's in your life. I have Jesus, but also. If you're saying I have Jesus, but also, then you don't see that the gospel is Jesus. You think that the gospel is about Jesus, Jesus and something else, but that's not true. The gospel is Jesus. There is nothing else. When you become a Christian, he becomes your righteousness. He is your holiness. He is your wisdom. That's the gospel because he came and lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you should have died. Now, when you think about that, can you see why the gospel is the thing that solves really all of your problems? If you're angry today, what you're really saying is, I have Jesus, but... I also need something else to be special or to be worthy or to be successful. I have Jesus, but I also need. Uh, and you see, that's not the gospel. The gospel is I have Jesus. And that's the solution to everything. I don't need anything else to feel worthy or special. I have Jesus. If you're anxious, uh, if you're discouraged, whatever it is, it's because you're saying, I have Jesus, but I also need... See, the gospel is Jesus and something else. No. No. The gospel is Jesus and Jesus alone. And when you begin to understand this, Colossians 1 tells us that the fruit begins to grow. And it fills your soul with a churning energy that enables you to love people because it comes from a faith in Jesus that produces it. Now, now there it is. Those, those are the tests that Paul gives us in Colossians, in, excuse me, in Colossians 1 to see if you understand the gospel. And I'll, do you understand that? Do you understand that the gospel is truth? Do you understand that the gospel is is joy. Do you understand that it's power? Do you understand that it's grace? Do you understand that the gospel is Jesus? Do you understand that the gospel is the bottomless pit out of which all of your solutions are going to come? Do you understand uh, that it's the only way in which you can grow as a Christian? In verse 2, Paul says, to the saints in Christ... He's talking about the Colossians, and he says, to the saints in Christ. Paul knows that Christians stand before God in Christ, and because he knows that, he is filled with power. If you're not filled with power, it's because you don't know that the gospel is Jesus. 
Now, here's a good way. Here's a way that you can respond to this today as you begin the Advent season and as you begin to, to just meditate on this passage through the week. Here's a great way for you to respond. I would challenge you this week to say to the Lord, Lord, show me the but also's in my life. Show me the other things that I have worked into the gospel. When Jesus is the gospel and nothing else. Help me to understand grace. Help me to understand that the gospel is truth and joy and power and that the gospel is Jesus. And I would challenge you that if you do that, if you ask the Lord this week, show me the but also, but also's. Uh, I would challenge, I would, I, would, I would even make this very bold promise that he will do it. He might say to you that your but also is success or your but also is money or your but also is some kind of security or your but also is the welfare of your family. Uh, none of which are wrong in and of themselves. It's just that if you include those in the gospel, if you make those the good news that you cling to, then you don't get the gospel. And if anything happens to those things, what happens to you? Oh my, you are shaken to your very core. Your foundation of your life is completely blown away. God says, I want the gospel to be the foundation of your life and nothing else. Ask him to show you the but also's. And just respond to that during this Advent season. Let's pray together. We confess to you, Lord Jesus, that we have made many, many other things the gospel. And we include you in that, but we, I would be the first to confess that I have, I have many but also's. And I repent uh, this morning. And I pray, Lord, that as people interact with this this week, pray that you would show them where the gospel's being diluted in their life. And, Lord, give us that Give us a joy, give us a sense of power, um, confidence in the truth, a sense of grace. And Lord, this Advent season, I pray that you would draw our attention to you and focus it on you, Lord Jesus, in a way that we've never done that before. In a very real sense, what we're asking you to be, Lord Jesus, is our vision. Our vision for our lives, to know you, and to know you intimately. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray.